Today's reading is uh, 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for you, bless for, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Good morning, everybody. I want to invite our children to Children's Church. Kathy, we'll meet you back there. And let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we do want to offer our hands, our lives, our minds, our hearts to you and ask that you animate them. Uh, Lord, would you move us uh, through the power of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, through the power of your love to us in Christ Jesus. And uh, Lord, we want to pray for those who are suffering. I think of uh, Daniel Holmquist and I thank you so much, Lord, for the, the really good prognosis and the good process that he's uh, experienced so far with his, uh, his fight against the cancer. Um, Lord, that's um, partly because of your general grace and giving us great medical advances, but also, Lord, it's because of your mercy and your kindness to him. And I know there are many saints praying, and Lord, you delight in the, the prayers of your saints to hear them and to answer them when it's according to your will. And so thank you for doing that in Daniel's life. And Lord, again, we ask that he would have a great opportunity to proclaim your goodness through uh, his illness and through his recovery. And uh, Father, I want to pray again for just the evangelical church in America, particularly, but in the West at large. Uh, Lord, we are um, wobbly. We are um, staggering. Um, we're beginning to divide up and split, and, and Lord, I just pray that you would bring a sense of unity and peace and purpose to us so that your glory would be shown amongst the nations. Lord, would you bring revival to our land? Would you rekindle in, in uh, lukewarm Christians a, a desire for their first love, uh, for Christians who think that they're Christians and have never really thought about who Jesus is or, or what his death had to do with them? Lord, would you grant them faith and and repentance and lead them to the truth. And Lord, for those who are um, just cultural Christians who, who um, have really no connection to a church, would you awaken them in the meaning of what they think they believe and uh, help them to see, cause them to see the glory of Christ. And for our Lord, for those who have no interest in religion, uh, who are maybe even antagonistic toward Christ, Lord, we pray for your mercy, for your grace and your peace to them. And Lord, uh, we know that you do those things primarily on earth through your church. And so we ask again for revival. Uh, waken us to the power of the gospel and the truth of who Jesus is. And help us to put our hope and our, our faith there. Be with us now, Lord, as we turn to a difficult, uh, another difficult portion of First Peter. Lord, help us to see and to grasp and Lord, sink it deep into our hearts and our minds. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So if you were to find this book in a box in um, 
in a back room or something, and you'd never heard of this book before. This is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This is a horrible illustration because almost everybody here has read it and is giant nerds and loves this book. But it was the best one I could think of. So work with me on this. Imagine you had never heard of this book before. No idea what it was. If I was to ask you, what is this book? What might you say? Well, you might think, well, it's the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So maybe it's a book of astronomy. And it's some astronomer, this Douglas Wilson guy has written, or Douglas Adams guy has written this book of, of uh, kind of a tour guide to the galaxy and what's at the center and how do the spiral arms form and what wonderful stars do we have? You might think it's a book of astronomy. Um, you might also think that potentially it's, it's a, a, they're using the word galaxy metaphorically and it might be a travel guide. Maybe this is somebody who's traveled extensively and they're writing about their travels around the world. And so they say galaxy just in a kind of a metaphorical sense. Um, perhaps you might think it's a picture book. It's a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So maybe it's pictures of earth and stars and all of these things. Um, if you're into uh, astrology, which none of you had better be, um, you might think that this is um, telling you what the stars hold in, in the future for you. But if you don't know, you're just gonna pick it up and look at it and assume, well, it, it means something. So. What I want to ask you then is, I need to set this up because I haven't figured out a better way to ask this question yet. So set that, that up this way. What is the Bible? If you pick up the Bible and you look at the Bible, what is it? Now, you folks who have been in the six essentials group, you know the answer to this because we kind of went over this, but I want to go through it again because it's really important. So what if you think that the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth? And yes, that's Gary Busey. And yes, he apparently wrote a book. Um, what if that's what you think the Bible is? You pick it up and you read it with the assumption, this is instructions for life. This is how I should live. Or perhaps you think it might be life's little handbook. It might be something to tell you how you could, you could live essentially. It contains necessary operating instructions and warnings from the manufacturer. What if that's what you think the Bible is primarily? Or maybe you think it's uh, your owner's manual like the, the owner's manual you pull out of the glove box, right? Um, it tells you how often to change the oil and how much pressure to put in the tires and, and what the capacity of your, uh, your gas tank is, those kinds of things. Maybe that's what you think the Bible is, is, is it's an owner's manual. Or perhaps you think it's just a book of daily affirmism, affirmisms, things to, to keep you inspired and motivated in your day. And you can just have these little quotes. By the way, that's Luke 4, 7. If thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. You guys know who said that, right? <laughs> Think about it. Luke 4, that's at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. So that's uh, kind of a, a misuse of it. But what if you think that's the, what the Bible is, is, is just these, these nice phrases to help inspire you? Well, when you pick up the Bible and you read it, that's how you're going to approach it. And what's going to happen is if you come to the verses that we're going to look at today and you think it's an instruction manual or you think it's inspirational or you think it's, it's the owner's manual for you, you're going to be crushed because that's not what the Bible is. And so what I want to do this morning is as we go through this is, is I'm not going to answer for you what the Bible is. I'm going to let Peter illustrate it for us. Okay, so that's where we're going to go. So let's take a look. He starts out finally. Um, the New American Standard uh, translates it as to sum up. 
And I actually think that's pretty good translation. It, it, the word is, is telos, the end or the completion or the point of a thing. So what Peter is saying here is let me, let me bring this whole thought together. So what has Peter been doing? Well, I don't know about you, but I was really glad last week was Easter. I needed a break. Peter was, was all up in my business. He has been really super personal lately. Submit to every human authority, everyone? Surely only the good ones. Nope, all of them. Uh, honor the, uh, the king and the governor. The governor? Have you met our governor? Yep, even the bad ones. Slaves, or in our case, I guess it would be um, uh, employers or uh, employees. Honor your, your boss, but surely only the ones that are, that are you know, doing what they should be doing. Nope, even the bad ones. Well, come on, Peter. Wives, submit to your husbands. Okay, good. We don't need to go any further. Yeah, except husbands, you've got to live with your wives in an understanding manner. Ah, oh, no more, right, Peter? You're done. We're, we're done here. You're getting out of my business and we can get back to some nice theology, right? And Peter just kind of smiles and gives you a sideways glance and goes, one more. So when we get to verse eight, it's finally, or to sum up, or let me bring all of these thoughts together for you. And it's for all of you. It's not just for you people who are struggling or, you know, you people who live in nice countries or it's all of you, the whole church, everybody, finally, all of you. What follows in the Greek is a rapid fire. It's four words or five words, rather five single words, just one after another, bam, 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 bam. In English, we have to translate that. So we pick up some extra words, but, but in Greek, you get this just repeated punch in the gut over and over again. So let's take Let's take these punches carefully. So the first thing he says is, is a unity of mind. So all of you have a unity of mind. And, and the word there is, is homo, like, uh, like homogenation or uh, homogenous um, milk or so, homogenized milk or something. It's that idea of all uniform, all put together, all just kind of blended into one, nice and, and the same. Homo and then the word for mind. So what he's telling us is we all need to have the same mind. Now, I don't think what he thinks, what he's saying there is that we have to somehow telepathically connect our brains and think exactly the same thoughts at all times. I think what he's using that for is a, a metaphor to say, be, be like-minded. All of you have a similar approach. What are you here for? What is this about? What are we, why do you gather on Saturday or Sunday morning? I almost went um, uh, Seventh-day Adventist on you there. I said Saturday morning. Why do, we, why do we do that? What do we do? He, he wants us to have a similar way of thinking. So be of, a, of unity of mind. The next word is have sympathy. And, and actually, this is the Greek word for this is where we get the word sympathy. It's sune, which is like uh, unified or going together, and pathos. So sympathy, it's, it's where we get that word from. And what it is, is it's uh, the pathos is not just like... Um, uh, like a, a, a movie about, you know, the pathos of this, this event or something. It is the whole range of emotions that we have. And the sune at the beginning is talking about being unified or, or, or gathered together. So we have a, a, a unity of mind. And then in our emotional state, we're, we're unified. We're together with each other in that. So what that means is when somebody in the body is aching, we all ache. When somebody is rejoicing, we all rejoice. When somebody is having a hard time, we all feel it. Not, not just pretend to feel it, 
it is coming from deep inside us. He's telling us to, to actually feel it. So like 1 Corinthians 12 says, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that it lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's what he's telling us to do. So if you hear about somebody in the church, maybe you don't know them that well, do you feel that? Does, does your immediate response go, oh, that's terrible. I'm so sorry for them. That's what he's telling us to do. That's what he wants from us. The next word is, is brotherly love. It's literally Philadelphia. We know that one. But stop thinking about cream cheese right now. Just stop it. It's, it's actually having a love for the brotherhood. And, and in the New Testament, the word brother, Adelphos, doesn't mean the male person in your family. The word Adelphos is, if I had taken time to look it up, I could show you there's places where it's talking about women too. What the Adelphoi is, what the brotherhood is, is all of us together. And so what he wants us to do is to have the similar mind, be thinking similar thoughts. And he wants us to have the similar emotions, mix our emotions together so that we can exhibit love for each other as brothers in Christ, as, as united, as this is our family, this is who we are, to have brotherly love. The next word is a tender heart. It's a rough word to translate. Um, it is, uh, the first part is eu, which is good, like eu, euphoria is a good phoria. Um, but the second part is the guts. It's, it's your inward parts. And what, what, what the word is getting at there is the ancients considered the seat of emotion is your guts. I mean, that's where you feel it, right? And eventually that talked and turned into the spleen. That's where we get the word from is for this. But also we talk about it as our heart. So what he's saying is have good guts. <laughs> well, that doesn't help. These, these, these root word fallacies are terrible. What is it talking about? It's talking about having great feelings for each other, having good feelings, feel good. Um, so what happens is... Um, more of the modern translations translated as uh, be compassionate, have, have actual feelings. So now do you see where, where Paul or Peter is going with this? He goes right into the very heart of who you are. And he's saying, be compassionate to one another, be tenderhearted. When somebody is wounded, don't be afraid to be wounded. Risk, put it out there and say, I could be burned by this. Be compassionate. Uh, the funny part is the King James translates it as be pitiful. I don't think it means be pathetic. I think what he means is be full of pity, have pity for each other, care for each other. It, it's not pretend to have care for each other. He's, he's actually talking about the inward parts of us. And then the last word he throws at us is have a humble mind. So he started with the mind, have a similar mind, have a united mind. And now he says, have a humble mind. Um, the humble mind, what, what do we mean by humility? Um, I'd been wrestling with the definition. I actually came across a pretty good one. I, Howard Marshall, one of the commentators on this, described it this way. He said, a humble people are those who are conscious of their own position as God's creatures, entirely dependent on him, and therefore who are able to think more highly of others than themselves. So it kind of goes with what I was saying, which is to be humble is to see ourselves as God sees us to agree with what God says about us. So Marshall is saying that we understand our position as God's creatures and we are entirely dependent on him and therefore we're able to think of others first. And I, the reason I like that is that Jesus can be humble. 
if the definition of humility is recognize your sinfulness before God, then Jesus is automatically excluded. And we can't exclude Jesus from humility. He, he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. He is the ultimate, the pinnacle of humility. So that's, that's actually not a bad way to do it. So what happens here is when he tells us to be humble of mind, what he's giving us is the linchpin that holds all of these other, these other four before it together. Because what we're doing is we're seeing ourselves the way God sees us. Um, we're, we're recognizing that we, first of all, are all sinners. That's, that's our position of humility is to say, I am a sinner just as bad as everybody else. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Solomon says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. He's not saying there's no one righteous. He's saying there, the, the righteous man sins. So what we have to do, what he's calling us to do to be humble of mind is to say, God, I agree with you. I am a sinner. There is none righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. All have abandoned you. All have fallen short of the glory of God. So we start by saying, that's who I am. I, I, I have recognized that I am a sinner. So I can't look at my brother or sister in the body and say, I'm better than you. Because we're, I, what I'm saying is, look, we're all in that same boat. We are all in need of a savior, every single one of us. That's the first step of humility. That's not the full answer, though. Because if you go there, how can you love your neighbor as yourself if you just despise yourself? What you need is the other half of the equation, and that is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That, that God has shown his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so I like the way Tim Keller says it. He says, you are more sinful than you dare imagine, and you are more loved than you could possibly conceive. And that's the nature of true humility. That's what I think Peter is getting at. If we adopt this idea that I am no better than the person sitting next to me, nor am I any worse than them, I am not more loved than the person sitting next to me, nor am I less loved. If, if Christ has done all of this for us, then we, we can have this idea that, hey, my brother is struggling, and I understand that. I struggle too. My sister is really broken right now, and, and I understand I have been broken, and I can feel that compassion, that humility of mind will enable those other ones. So you can't go through that list and just breeze through it and go, yeah, check, I got it. Peter's asking us, stop and consider these. Slow down, listen. So what he's told us here is what you must do. You must do these things. And, and the way to hold it all together is to be humble of mind. But then he goes to the next step. Now he's going to tell us in verse 9 what you must not do, what you cannot do. Verse 9 says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Evil, reviling, don't return those. Notice he says, don't return those, assuming we have received those. They, they've come to us. So what he's telling us is, don't respond in kind. Don't throw that back at the other person. And I'll tell you what, the, the, the temptation in the West in general, but in America right now, is to return evil for evil. You, you see it happening all the time. You, you people on the left are on the right are terrible people. You're evil and I'm going to zap you. I'm going to get you for that. I, I can't let you destroy this nation by your, your wicked ways. 
And it comes from both directions. It's not just one side or the other. Both sides are doing that to each other. And so our temptation being in between that, in the middle of that, is to return evil for evil. They did that to us. Boy, we're going to get them now. Or reviling for reviling. (laughs) That's the hard one. I think social media has made it so easy to revile, to just jump on somebody. Um, Moral philosopher Jonathan Haidt uh, wrote a very thoughtful piece in the Atlantic this month, and its title is Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Made Us or Have Been Uniquely Stupid. And so he, he goes through and he, he does, it's, it's a bit of a long read, but I thought it was really good. One point he says, by 2013, social media had become a new game with dynamics unlike those in 2008. If you were skillful or lucky, you might create a post that would go viral and make you internet famous for a few days. If you blundered, you could find yourself buried in hateful comments. Your posts rose to fame or ignominity based on the clicks of thousands of strangers, and you in turn uh, contributed thousands of clicks to the game. It's so easy to do that on social media. Hate goes on. He says, this new game encouraged dishonesty and mob dynamics. Users were guided not by their true preferences, but by their past experiences of reward and punishment and their prediction of how others would react to every new action. One of the engineers at Twitter who worked on the retweet button later revealed that he regretted his contribution because it made Twitter a nastier place. As he watched Twitter mobs forming through the use of this new tool, he thought to himself, we might have just handed a four-year-old a loaded weapon. And I've got to say, I think he's right. I think he's exactly right. We are supposed to not return reviling for reviling. So when you get on Twitter and you see some person who has poorly conceived some idea throwing hate at Christians and saying how terrible they are, it is so tempting to hit that reply button or retweet and put your comment in there and say, yeah, well, you're an idiot too. And what we're told is don't do that. Don't return reviling for reviling. One of the memes that always mashes my buttons every time I see it, it says, if your church looks like this, and it shows a picture of Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church, which, by the way, is a football stadium. They bought it, a retired football stadium, converted it into a church. If your church looks like this, and your pastor's home looks like this, now I don't know if it's Osteen's home or not, but it's his sprawling mansion. And then the next one is a sad-faced child, and it says, and, and one out of three children in America lives in poverty. Then it's time to tax the churches. That one mashes my buttons every single time, and I really, I have to bite my tongue because it's like, you pick the one oddball out of the whole, most churches are below 250 people. They don't look like Osteen's church. And I don't know of any pastor that lives in a sprawling mansion like that. So maybe that's an inaccurate, but you got to do it in a careful and a loving way. So we are not allowed to return evil for evil. We are not allowed to punish those who oppress us and who who turn against us and who are going to ruin this country from the left or from the right, whichever side you're on. Nor are we allowed to revile, to just return that reviling. But on the contrary, rather than do that, he says, bless. Bless is eulogos, is a good word. But in the New Testament, it's not just say nice words to people. It is at least that. To bless somebody is to do good by them. 
So when we see these folks who are reviling Christians or, or uh, uh, within the church arguing back and forth about politics or whatever, what we're supposed to do is not revile, is not return evil. Instead, Peter tells us, bless them. Return a blessing to them. Ha. Ah. <laughs> How? Well, it's, he says, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So he, what he's telling us is you are expected to go and do this for them because that's the life that you've been called to. Do you see the problem here? The opposite of returning evil, if in other words, not returning evil is not neutrality. The opposite of reviling is not silence. The opposite of not returning evil, the opposite or the opposite of returning evil, the opposite of reviling is blessing, is prayer, is actually concern for people. And how do I do that? I can't feel that. I can't, I can't muster that feeling up. So I should just do it, right? Well, where does all of that come from? Where does all of that desire for revenge come from? Where does that desire to revile come from? Jesus said it himself. In Mark 7, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. So do you see what Peter has done? He has taken this right to our heart. How on earth am I supposed to bless? How on earth am I supposed to do that? How, how can I change my heart to do these things? And, and the old idea of fake it until you make it ain't gonna work here. Peter didn't get, say, appear to be or act like. He's, he goes right to the heart. He goes right to your guts. Have good guts. Have a good heart. Have a good spleen. And feel these things. Love this way. Act this way. Here's the thing. If we look to religion to do these things, if we say, I, I, if I can just get enough religion, I'll do this. What you do is re religious observance will give you the standards to live by. Here's what you must do. And so externally, you will put on this face and you will say, my religion says I must be this way to these people and therefore I am this way to this people. It's mechanical. It's external. It doesn't go inside. You know who was really good at that? The Pharisees. Did Jesus have really good words for Pharisees? He called them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Whitewashed, clean on the outside and inwardly corrupt. Horrible. So religion can't do that. Religion at its worst will actually accomplish the opposite of that. Because if you convince yourself, I'm doing this, look at, measure my performance. I am living with sympathy. I sent a card to that person. What you begin to do is you kill the humility. Instead of saying, I'm a sinner like them, you're thinking, hey, I've overcome that. Can you have sympathy for that person? Can you say, I know you're struggling. If you think you've defeated it, there's a huge danger. Your response will be, well, get over it. Well, how come you keep struggling with this? Why don't you just stop? The old um, um, Bob Newhart thing, just stop it. As if that was what you needed to hear was more rules. Give me another rule. Religion can't do that. Religion can't take us that far. 
So where does Peter take us? Where does he send us to, to get that heart, to get that inward inside us? Where Peter sends us in verse 10 and through 12 is to scripture. He sends us to the Psalms. So what he's going to do is he's going to give us not religion, but he's going to direct us to a place where our heart can be made new. And listen to where he goes with it. He says, for whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him tongue keep from evil and his lip from speaking lies. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Wait, didn't he just say what, what we said you can't do? Go do these things. Well, he's, he's not just pulling a piece out of the, the psalm. He's got the whole psalm in mind. And so I'm so grateful that we read it this morning. It starts with these words in italics. If you look in your Bible, you'll see these words in italics after Psalm 34. And there might be something that says what the psalm is. Then there's words in italics. And then the psalm begins. Those words in italics are in Hebrew. They're in the Hebrew Bible. Um, there, there, there is no edition that I'm aware of that doesn't have those psalm titles. Not every psalm has a title. Some of them don't. Some of them do. Some of them you read the title and go, I don't get what that has to do with this psalm. But as far as we can tell, they're, they're part of the original manuscripts. So Psalm 34 begins, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. What is that talking about? Well, what that's talking about is 1 Samuel 21. David has been on the run from Saul. Saul has gone insane, is going to kill David because David got anointed, he'll be the next king. And so David is, is running. And, and when Jonathan tells him, my father is going to kill you, David takes off and he goes to the high priest. The high priest is Abimelech. And he says, do you have any food? And the high priest says, all we have is the, the loaves that go before the Lord. And, and, and so he just, they make a decision that he'll give it to him. After that, Doag, the Edomite, finds out that David's there, and he goes and tattles. So David's now on the run again. So where does he go? What, what is his options? Well, in, in um, 1 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 12, it says, And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his appearance before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. What he did is he ran to Gath. The last time we heard Gath, that's where Goliath was from. So he runs to the, the, the uh, Gentiles to hide. And then when he gets there, he pretends that he's insane. Now, wait a minute. It says Achish, not Abimelech. Abimelech was the priest who he didn't run from, but Achish was the king that he did run. So did the Bible get it wrong here? Well, I don't think so. I'm kind of biased that way. I tend to think that the Bible didn't get it wrong. What is Abimelech? Well, Abimelech was a name, and we meet a handful of people in the Bible who were named Abimelech. The other thing is Abimelech is Abi, which is my father or the father, and Melech, which is king. So it could just be a title for a person. So the high priest could be called Abimelech. But for example, in Genesis 20, Abraham flees because there's a, a famine in the land. He goes to Abimelech and he tells Sarah, lie and say that you're my sister. Well, in, in chapter 26, Isaac goes and does the same thing and goes to Abimelech. There's a lot of room between those two. Do they go to the same person or was Abimelech a name for the kingly office? 
So that's what I think it is. I think it's what it's getting at is Abimelech is, is not the person necessarily, could be, but I think it could also be the, the office. So when the Psalm says, this is when David changed his behavior so Abimelech, for before Abimelech, I think that's what it's getting at. It's talking about Achish. Um, enough of that. Put that aside. Why did he do it? Why did he flee to the enemies? Well, I think it was pretty clever because David is looking and saying, okay, I'm on the run. Saul is after me. Where can I hide? Well, I know if I go to the Philistines, Saul will not likely pursue me there because if all of a sudden a detachment of Saul's army shows up, that's going to be essentially an act of war. And I don't think Saul wants to invite war with the Philistines. So I'll go hide with the Philistines. Saul drops it. He's, he's, He's off his trail for a while. The problem is, what if I get to the Philistines and they hear about my military exploits with Saul? I may be pressed into service. I may be recruited. So I don't want the king to want me around either. I want him to eventually drive me out. And so I think it was brilliant to go, I'll just act insane. He's got dribble running down his chin. He's, he's scribbling on the doors, probably talking utter nonsense. And Abimelech, uh, uh, Achish, looks at him and goes, look, don't we have enough crazy people? Why are we importing him from Israel? I think we got enough on our own. We don't need any more. Get him out of here. And so he sends him out. Now, what has David done? He has distanced himself from Saul. He's cut off that trail. And he's also gotten out, escaped from his enemies because they just think he's nuts. Also, if I can just throw a little side note in there, I think what David might be thinking also is, I'm going to be king of Israel someday, and these guys are my enemies. So what happens if they think I'm nuts? They, they heard about my military exploits before. What if the king thinks now I'm insane? Well, when I take the, off, when I take the, the throne and he comes after me, he's going to think he's fighting a madman. And boy, am I going to surprise him. So it could be a tactical advantage. I, just guessing. It's just kind of my, my shot at it. But look at the psalm. The psalm is what, what really counts here. That's the, the important part. So look at Psalm 34. The first part of Psalm 34, David is talking about those who seek God, God delivers them. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 8, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And this is in the context of David being so crafty with Saul and with Achish, and yet he gets there and his response to that episode is, God delivered me. God did that. And and I'm not not fleeing to Achish to take uh, a refuge in him. He's he's no help. I'm trusting in the Lord. And so that's that's his response is, I'm going to go trust in the Lord. And then Peter quotes 11 through 15. And, and we heard that. Keep your tongue from speaking lies or from speaking deceit. Wouldn't you say acting insane might be a little bit of de- deceit? So maybe the clue here is that David is not looking to his own righteousness and saying, I'm that good. Uh, God would never do anything to me. He, he's just deceived in all of that. I think the clue to what Psalm 34 is about, and this gets back to that question about what is the Bible? It comes in um, verses 19 and 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps his bones. Not one of them is broken. Here's the clue. John 19.36 quotes that line from that psalm and applies it to Jesus on the cross. God looks to the righteous. 
if we are of humble mind, we are going to acknowledge, I am not righteous enough. And so what we do is we, we recite this psalm, and Peter is driving us to the psalm, and he's saying, what is the Bible? Is the Bible a, a guide for living? Or is it pointing you to Christ? Not one of his bones was broken. God looks to the righteous. He, he was crucified for you so that you, his righteousness could be yours. When God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Christ's righteousness on you. And so he will deliver you. He will, he will help you. He will lead you through this. That's why God's eyes on the righteous is so important. It's not us. It's as we are in Christ. So it doesn't contradict everything Peter has said so far. It complements it, it amplifies it. And what Peter is doing is he's saying, look to the scriptures. Go find Jesus. He's in the Bible. And that's our hope. That's our help. What is the Bible? It is not your handbook. Now, to be fair, it does have instructions. It tells, didn't he just tell us what to do? Be kind-hearted, be sympathetic, be humble-minded. It tells you what to do. So is it life's handbook? In a way, but ultimately, what it's telling you to do, these basic instructions before leaving earth, is don't trust in yourself. Trust in Jesus Christ. So that's what the Bible is about. That's how Paul, Peter can tell us, do all of these things from the heart. And you're going, I don't feel it. I just, I don't feel it. I don't, I, I don't click with these people. I don't understand them. How am I supposed to be like-minded with them? How am I supposed to say, be sympathetic with them? How am I supposed to think that way? Peter says, here's how you do it. Stop looking at yourself. Stop searching for something in you to do that. And instead, look to Christ. And as you look to him, you see, I was that bad that Jesus had to die for me. I was that loved that Jesus died for me. Now, when you look at the person next to you and you go, I don't really care for them, but Jesus did that for them too. It can begin to change things. The other thing, the other great news that Peter has told us is he, we have been given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work in you to do these things. Jesus Christ is at work in you. The Holy Spirit is in there changing your heart and God the Father is calling you to these things. The Trinity is conspiring against you in the best possible way. And it's tremendously good news. It's not up to you to change your heart and go, I'm just going to muscle through this. What it is up to you to do is say, Lord, show me. Convict me of my own weakness. Convict me of your overwhelming love for me and help me see that in others. That's how you get your heart changed. What we don't need is more religion. We don't need, here's a list of do's and here's a list of don'ts. And that's going to change your heart. It might. It might tragically change your heart. It might lead you to pride or worse, it might lead you to utter despair. I can't do this. I must not be a Christian. So here's the rules. Follow the rules, but don't look to the rules for deliverance and salvation. Look to Jesus Christ. So how can we live like Peter is telling us? Not by counting on living like Peter tells us. That's how you live how Peter is telling us, by recognizing that we're no better than others, by serving. This is one of the things that Jonathan Haidt had in his article is, you need to get out of the bubble. You need to get past the, the, the social media. You need to be engaged and involved with other people. So serving others, get out of your bubble. 
um, by living like Peter told us, by actually doing it. So how do you do it? By doing it. That's how you do it. Just don't ever put your hope in that. Count on that gift of the Spirit. Count on that work of the Bible. Read the scriptures. This is so cool. I'm working on this, this passage from Peter this week, wrestling through it, struggling through it, and I'm doing my daily Bible reading through the Bible. And guess what I read yesterday? Psalm 34. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. It's right there. I just have to read that whole thing. It, it put it right in front of me. Reading the Bible is not magic. It, it, these are not magic words that yet you say and it will change you. What it is, is it's the story of Jesus Christ and hearing it over and over and over again. You, you drink that story in and you get, I am part of something much bigger than me. God has been at work since the fall in this way. And that's where I fit in. I just latch into that and I go with that flow. That's where I fit in the story. I'm not the star. I'm not what the Bible is about. It's about God saving people. And I just get to be part of the crowd that he saves. That's humility of mind. That will change your heart. That will open your eyes. But it takes work. It's not something you just sit and passively, you know, it, it, put your Bible on your nightstand and it magically bleeds into your head overnight or something. You, you have to actually do it. You have to intentionally read. You have to intentionally find Jesus in the Old Testament. You have to work through those things. It's not easy, but changing your heart's not easy either. So the good news is God's on your side in this. He wants to do this work in you. Peter is demonstrating for us, go to the scriptures, go find what the Lord has done for you. And you'll hear along the way, this is how you should live. But you will only ever do what you want to do. If you don't want to live that way, you won't live that way. So the question isn't, what must I do? Lord, how do I change my heart? How do I want what you want? Listen, listen to him. Go on that journey with him. Understand your flow in history. See what he's done to accomplish great things in you. And then go do what Peter said. Live that way. But again, don't think that's, that's what does it. That's not the good news. Not one of his bones was broken. God looks to the righteous. That's the good news. Jesus is your righteousness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that in this message about how we should live and what we're supposed to do and what we're supposed to feel and what, how we're not supposed to respond, uh, Lord, this, there's tremendous promise in there of blessing, that you, will, you, you want us to bless others because that's what we're supposed to inherit is blessing. So, Lord, um, help us to maintain this, this difficult balance on this tightrope. On the one side, our own overestimation of ourselves is trying to draw us into our own self-righteousness. Our underestimation of our value, of our worth to you, is, is trying to draw us off into despair. And so, Lord, we want to continue to walk in the message that you've given us so that we might have hope in this dispersion as we're awaiting the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, would you speak to all of us? I pray for every single person in this room, every person on the Zoom call right now, Lord, that this week you would make some scripture jump off the page at them that would just pop. Lord, that, that some verse of some scripture would remind them or show them in a fresh way that Jesus Christ really does care. Lord, that you 
you look to the righteous and that as we're in him, we're secure. Lord, help us with this. We can't do it on our own. We can't, we can't muster it up. But Holy Spirit, it's your word and we're your people. So please accomplish these things in us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.